I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, May 23rd. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, an update on COVID-19. Then, why the Gulf Coast has become ground zero in a battle over who gets to use America's train tracks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A shootout at the state fairgrounds a few weeks ago in Jackson has heightened longstanding concerns about violent crime in Mississippi's capital. Last year, the city recorded more than 150 homicides, an all-time record. City leaders say they're taking the issue seriously. So, too, state officials, up to and including Governor Tate Reeves. Mississippi families deserve to feel safe walking around their neighborhoods. They deserve to feel comfortable in their homes, and they deserve to feel confident that they can travel and gather safely in their capital city. Kevin Levine is a longtime law enforcement officer and a professor of criminology at Jackson State University. I asked him if he believes, as many do, that escalating violence comes as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Speaking professionally from academic and a practitioner of law enforcement, I would have to uh, take question with that. I, I, I cannot uh, say that, that uh, hang my hat on that. I don't agree wholeheartedly with that. I think that time period for making those type of statements has passed since the country has been, you know, we've been reopened. There are people uh, uh, begging for jobs. I was just in the line last night at Wendy's and saw they were t- uh, paying $14 an hour uh, and of signing bonus. I jokingly asked, where do I sign up? So, no, I, I, there's plenty of opportunity for legal uh, work out there. I don't see that as being a, a, a cause right now. What are we dealing with then? Well, uh, there, in academia, there's a saying that says law enforcement only gets involved when other social institutions have failed. And you have to uh, really look at that. What social institution are we talking about? especially when it comes to dealing with the crime that's being uh, in Jackson, which are being perpetrated by juveniles, the family, the school, community, our partners, 
in the CJ system. Those are the four social institutions that have to get on board and get behind putting together some type of initiative or plan to get this juvenile crime wave under control. And that's the way I view it as a juvenile crime wave. That's because the, if you look at the age of the individuals who are perpetrating these violent crimes, we're not talking about just misdemeanor. We're talking about violent crime. They're juveniles. One thing that came up with the Mud Bug Festival shooting where one youth was killed by police mm-hmm. during this uh, gunfight and <clears throat> reportedly eight people were injured is that right. one of them that was arrested, a juvenile, 15 years old, the mm-hmm. family said that he needed mental health care. You have to look at what uh, mental health is a very broad statement because it comes in a lot of forms. And being criminology, what we look at uh, are multiple issues that can affect mental health. So to answer your question, yes, they do. Uh, I'm not saying they all, but if we got to looking at the history of these kids and their parents, I'm pretty sure we'll find history of mental illness in that in that lineage. So we've heard from Mississippi leaders, law enforcement, that they want to hire more officers and try and have a large law enforcement presence. Do right. you see that as being an answer? No, because one thing, I've, and, uh, and if you're looking at every interview I've given, and I am and I steadfastly with 32 years of law enforcement, I can say, and being in narcotics, still working in narcotics now, dealing with that, we can't police our way out of this. We have to have, uh, uh, which is a controversial issue when it comes to law enforcement, alternative treatments and alternative sentencing. We have to do better as law enforcement. That, that brings me to the next, to the uh, CJ system. As a CJ and when you say system, CJ, got, you say you mean criminal justice. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, the criminal justice system. And see, what we're going to have to do on that side is do better. There are two forms, Ms. Frazier, that in academics we classify in criminal justice as methodology. One is called the consensus model, and the other one is called the conflict model. We're sad to say, and I can say this because I'm a practitioner, I'm a law enforcement been since I was at JPD on up to now, that um, – the, we were operating on the conflict model, which says each component of the CJ system, courts, correction, and law enforcement, work independently of each other. Where we need to be a consensus model where all three work together. And when I say that, we can place a juvenile into the uh, a correctional facility and not even know that this individual is out on bond or has a charge pending in another jurisdiction because the courts and the correctional facilities aren't communicating well with one another. Or law enforcement is not saying, doesn't know that this kid has a juvenile case on him. So he goes in and uh, he gets released. So these kids roam the streets freely because in a lot of cases they terrorize the neighborhood to where the the community is not going to call and snitch on them because they're afraid that if they call and snitch, they'll find out it was them because you know, they have a lack of trust of the law enforcement. They feel that, well, if I say, hey, he's here, then they're going to say, well, your neighbor told me. So there's a disconnect between the community and law enforcement uh, because we haven't done a good job 
recently of winning over the trust and confidence, when I say we, law enforcement, of uh, the community. So what happens? You get youth. Uh, I get calls, Ms. Fraser. Uh, I got two houses I got to deal with now where they have kids that are walking in their front yards with automatic rifles terrorizing the neighborhood. Had one incident where they were looking for uh, someone, and they were stopping cars like they were doing a checkpoint. So, yeah, we have to do better. Those components that I spoke of uh, in working with what's going on with these youth. Until then, we are, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, we're chasing our own tails. Okay, so in looking at this issue, mm-hmm. can you name like the five top things that need to be done in order to turn this situation around in our oh, communities? Yes. Oh, yes, easily. First of all, we have to start in the home. And and that does not necessarily mean uh, holding, well, well, it is involved parent, holding parents accountable, but we have to help the parents and find out what's going on in that home because a lot of times uh, you have homes with grandparents that need help and they can't control these kids. So first, we got to deal with the family unit and help uh, where we can because if you put a child in the youth detention center and put them back into that dysfunctional home, you've done nothing. Secondly, we have to look at the schools. We have to give the resources to the school. Uh, there's a theoretical perspective called social disorganizational theory which says, uh, mainly says, unequitable distribution of wealth causes crime. And in the case of the school, we're talking about fully funding education and getting better uh, pay for teachers and getting better quality in the school. We have schools now in Jackson where these kids don't have textbooks to take home to do homework. So we have to do better with the schools. Is gang activity a big part of this? Well, it is, but we kind of, uh, I, I taught gangs in America at Tulane. And I and before it closed here in Jackson, I told them, we have to change the textbook. And the uh, campus administrator said, why? I said, because gangs that we traditionally know, know them have evolved. And this is old, antiquated uh, information about these gangs. What's happening with gangs in Jackson, you have gangs that were once uh, sworn enemies working together. And they become uh, a business with the drug game, drug game. So uh, they set aside that the gang war used to be over turf and territory. Now they're setting that aside, and it's becoming neighborhoods. Uh, you can have one group on this street that don't like the group two streets over because they're selling the same type of product. So when you mention, when you use the term gang, that's just a, a, a convenient term, but these uh, what's happening in Jackson has uh, a different goal. These uh, youth organizations or these uh, gangs, as like you said. But when you talk <clears throat> about um, gangs in neighborhoods this way, why are they shooting at each other? Just because they don't like each other? Exactly, and and I'm glad you mentioned that opportunity. And that what you spoke of, they don't like each other. Well, when the opportunity presents itself, they're going to act out where if I see this guy and I don't like this individual, I have no fear of the police because I know they don't have enough to police my area so I can have a shootout. And by the time uh, we get finished, the police still not uh, there. So they have no fear of uh, 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 
being caught by the police at the time they commit those incidents because they know that there are not enough officers to uh, saturate or patrol in the area. So when a uh, chance and opportunity come together, you have the propensity for violence. And that's what we're seeing why it's happening more during the daytime in public areas that have a high rate of people around. Like the, the mud bug, they, they know, hey, I can do this and get away with it. Kevin Levine is a professor of criminology at Jackson State University. We'll hear more from him on tomorrow's show. Coming up, the latest on COVID-19. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. We're definitely in in a period of increased activity. That state epidemiologist Dr. Paul Byers addressing an uptick in Mississippi's COVID-19 numbers. Only a few, few weeks ago, Dr. Byers says the state averaged about 50 new cases of the virus per day. Now that number is up well over 100. Now is the time that we really want to take the opportunity to prevent those those deaths and those hospitalizations. And we really haven't seen the, the deaths uh, come out of this so far. Our, our deaths are pretty low, and we're, we're pleased with that. Dr. Byers says he sees no immediate threat to Mississippi's hospital capacity. But last summer's virus spike, which saw the University of Mississippi Medical Center caring for patients in its parking garage, serves as a reminder that could change quickly. The way that we need to be prepared for that is that if you're eligible for vaccine, you really need to get up to date. And that up to date means, depending on your eligibility, that you've gotten those two doses and you've gotten at least one booster. Currently, a little over half of Mississippians are considered to have been fully vaccinated against COVID-19, but many of those have not yet been boosted. 